It's just after 6 o'clock, and you are listening to WFMU. My name's Benjamin Walker, and this is the very last, final, grand finale of the program. Known as, because it's on its way out, known as, formerly known as, Too Much Information. You know, I was just looking at uh, the archive, and this program began almost exactly four years ago. When uh, that was back when Douglas Rushkoff was doing his show, and then he up and left, and I was doing the music show in the morning, and I said, "Yes, we can do a talk show," thinking it wouldn't be, you know, that much work. And now I have a cane, a hip replacement, uh, been through a battery of uh, diseases and uh, illnesses, all stemming from that decision. But it's been a lot of fun. But, you know, the thing is, when I thought of that name, Too Much Information, right? If you think back, if you were alive back then, in 2009, the idea of using a title like that for a show that kind of dealt with conspiracy theories, the internet, technology, was kind of funny. This was in the day, in the age when, like, your mom was starting to get on Facebook. Ha ha ha! It was just still slightly funny. Now... The name Too Much Information makes me want to put a gun in my mouth. As it's, uh, who would have thought I would have gotten that bad? Now it's, who would have thought? But uh, we have a new schedule coming out starting next week. And I decided that it was time, time for a break. But it's, it's been a lot of fun being here these past four years. And I enjoyed all of it. And uh, a lot of the characters that uh, uh, I've introduced you to over the, the last while, they are going to live on. I mean, one of the problems with doing this show was that it was a whole hour. And I know you're like, dude, it's one hour. One hour. What are you whining about? But it, it just t- took, took a lot of time to put it together. And, you know, when you do a podcast, it can be as long as you want it to be. So... Uh, yours truly is going that route and uh, I'll put a link on the Aki playlist but uh, you can find a lot of the same people a lot of the same stuff on the new podcast which is called The Theory of Everything which is a title I like a little better than too much information but dear listener uh, let's hear something now for our last program which is actually coming here somewhere. Wait, where did it go? All right. All right, here we go. So, without further ado, here's an episode I just put together for said new podcast. It's called Transformers. The day after Bradley Manning was sentenced to prison for 35 years for leaking documents to WikiLeaks, he made an announcement through his lawyer. In the future, he wanted to be called Chelsea. This threw the free Bradley Manning movement for a loop. Posters, billboards, and websites had to be changed overnight. But according to Nathan Fuller, the press liaison for the private Manning support network, this was not a difficult transition. I see Manning's uh, announcement of her transition as a continuation of her uh, of her courage, of the bravery that we've seen from her uh, from the last three years. 
uh, as a soldier, uh, Manning said that she could not uh, be complicit in in these crimes and, and abuses that she later exposed. It's incredibly inspiring that uh, she announces that she is not going to be living as a man. She cannot uh, accept that, and so she's going to announce that she's living as a woman in an all-male prison in a military that does not recognize transgender rights. Some of Chelsea's supporters are hopeful that she might get the hormonal therapy that she's petitioned for. But we are talking about a system that won't even deliver a letter to Private Manning unless it's addressed to Bradley E. Manning. Fuller and others are especially concerned about what might happen to Chelsea if attention wanes. I certainly feared that that Manning would fade from the public eye and and saw what happened in 2010, you know, when she was put in solitary confinement, and it was months before we really learned the details of that. I think we can't let it slip. We can't, you know, assume that if we uh, turn the, turn our eyes, the military is going to treat uh, Manning well. I think we have to keep a close eye. It's difficult to imagine Chelsea Manning getting the hormone therapy that she's requested because when it comes to the correctional system, the standard procedure for transgender individuals is discrimination, humiliation, and solitary confinement. When I asked why am I being put in special housing unit, the only answer that I get is because you look like a female, because the way that you look. That's what I would get, point and simple, because of the way that you look. A prisoner does time in solitary or special housing when they commit an offense inside of the prison. But Yvette Gonzalez spent three and a half years in special housing in a number of New York State prisons simply because she was trans. I didn't attack no officer. I didn't attack no inmate. I was never caught having any sexual relations in the jails. I was put in there because of me being transgender and me being and me identifying as female and looking like a female. That was the reason that they put me there and no other reason. Today, if Yvette went to prison, she'd go to a woman's facility. But when she was arrested in 2003, she had yet to complete her gender reassignment surgery. I had taken hormones. I had breasts. I had my hair. I had my face, my body. But they defined me of what was between my legs, the genitalia. Prisons use solitary confinement to deal with the worst of the worst. At least that's the official policy. The actual number of Americans doing time in solitary, though, continues to rise every year. And there's growing evidence that the human psyche just cannot withstand these long periods of isolation. You start to develop figments of your own imagination, you can say. You start to develop a friend. You start to talk to yourself. You start to answer yourself. You start to see things. You start to imagine that there's someone there just to keep some level of sanity. I remember sometimes my cell became a runway. I remember sometimes I was laid out in the bed and I was in freaking somewhere hot with palm trees and the water. I could hear the water. I remember sometimes I was window shopping. I remember sometimes I was on a date with a guy. Just to feel like I was communicating with a human being. To this day, I struggle. I struggle with being put in solitary for so long. 
Individuals like Yvette are housed in solitary, even though they've done nothing wrong, for their own protection. Well, again, that's the official reason. But Yvette Gonzalez totally rejects this. Correction never protected me. When I was taken out of special housing unit, transferred to other jails, and, 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 and was able to be in population for a few days or a week, I was never attacked by a male inmate. Even the, the Muslims and the gang members took, you know, they, they, they took to me. They, 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 hey, how you doing? What's up? How you doing? My name is, you know, what's your name? When my name is even The male inmates called me she. The correction officers called me he. So that lets you know right there the, the, the level of treatment that I was receiving from the inmates who some of these inmates were murderers, rapists. I met a few rapists there. Okay. When I was in um, Clinton, Dynamora, in APPU, son of Sam, David Berkowitz, used to sleep right next to me. I used to have David Berkowitz sitting on my bed, a man who I fit his profile and never attacked me. Son of Sam used to call me J-Lo. Wait, wait, wh why did Son of Sam call you J-Lo? Because I'm curvy, you know, my butt and stuff like that. Yvette did not need protection from the other inmates. She needed protection from the guards. I would sleep in a cell with David Berkowitz before I slept in a cell with a correction officer. After Yvette was sentenced, she was moved from Rikers Island to a prison upstate, and she was immediately put into special housing unit, SHU, or the box. But for some reason, the night guard moved her to the last cell on his block. And this is where we pick up the story, when the night guard pays Yvette a nighttime visit. Okay, so a quick warning. You're about to hear a graphic description of sexual violence. But it's very important that you listen. Yvette is not talking to herself anymore. We are not figments of her imagination. We are real. I heard my cell open, because it makes a loud like, eh. and I'm like, why is my cell door opening? So then he comes, the officer, and he opens the door, and he stands, and he's putting on gloves, latex gloves, and he's like on the search. So he comes in, and he says, stand up. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought this anything to be unusual because they search, they do random searching. It is the norm that they can search a cubicle, you know, search your surroundings and all that. But when it comes to stripping and stuff, they usually have more than one correctional officer. He was alone. Um, and he told me to stand up. He said, I want you to strip. And he told me to turn around and he looked behind him like this at the door and kind of closed it a little bit, the metal door. And then he tells me, bend over on the bed. And I'm like, no, what are you talking about? And he's like, turn around and bend over. And I wouldn't. This guy was about I'm like 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, this guy was about 6'3". Big, white guy. Like a big, husky-type guy. And he comes to me, and he punches me so hard in my ribs, so hard, that I felt like I was choking, like I couldn't breathe. And 
I started crying from the pain that I felt on my ribs. And then he hit me again. Boom. He said, I f***ing told you to bend over on the bed. And he hit me again. And then he hit me again. And he hit me again. And then he gets closer to me and pushes me down on the bed. And I remember him getting behind me. And I remember feeling his breathing on the side of my face. And I remember he said, you're going to love this. When that officer moved me to that back cell, I had no, I just thought that what he said, he didn't want me close to him. I just thought he was probably racist, homophobic, transphobic, whatever. But when that officer moved me to the back cell and my first attack, when he first attacked me in that back cell and he raped me in that back cell, I knew then that his intention of moving me to that back cell was to rape me and and to get away with it. That officer made sure that I was locked down 24 hours a day. I didn't even get to go to the yard so that no one would see me bruised up, so that I was unable to talk to anyone. Being in solitary, um, I was an individual who never saw a psychiatrist or anything. And being in solitary... Um, affected my life um, affected my life tremendously you know um, I'm just I'm I'm not the same person it it, it took it took who, who who I was it took my happiness it took my joy it took everything from me and to this day, I, I, I still suffer. And to this day, I still sometimes feel like I'm in that cell, locked in, not being fed, cold, no shower sometimes, with an officer on top of me telling me that I'm going to like it. When you want to use uh, testosterone, if you've been assigned uh, female gender when you were born, you have to declare yourself gender dysphoric. And therefore, you, you go through a kind of a legal, medical, and psychiatric protocol. 
And basically I decided to take testosterone outside of those legal and medical frameworks. This is Beatriz Preciado. At least that's her legal name. I like to call myself B. B uses both male and female pronouns. She's a trans feminist thinker whose work revolves around gender and the political history of the body. In other words, she studies the things that shape identity. I mean, all these terms like the gender binary and even the notion of gender, they have been invented by the medical system and the legal regimes. In the 19th century, the key of, uh, of the management of identity and sexuality was basically increasing the reproduction of the nation through repression of uh, non-reproductive sexual activities homosexuality, uh, fetishism, and of course, masturbation. For the, the 19th century medical discourse, masturbation was a pathology. The thing is that when we come to the, the 20th century, basically, we're gonna see something very different, which is pornography becoming popular culture. I mean, if the, the 19th century physicians wake up in the, in the middle of the, of the 50s and 60s and see Playboy like becoming the, the main entertainment empire that it was in the 50s until the, the 80s, basically, I mean, they die. They, they, like, they go crazy. Today, B says, it's more complicated to resist the norms that shape identity than it used to be. The state mm, is not as important anymore. We have to be um, much more careful in terms of politics, in terms of activism, because it's not only like a dialogue with the, with the state, a dialogue with the law, but it's really, um, it has to be a way of opposing capitalism and the way in which these uh, new industries are managing identity. We continue to use heterosexuality and homosexuality as if those were like real things that are outside there in nature, right? And still people are thinking like, am I homosexual, am I heterosexual, or I'm both, or I'm bisexual, or whatever. And I'm basically, I like to think about those as, as living fictions, as political living fictions that we identify with. The new media technologies, the new internet, they provide a new lot of normative codes uh, for reproducing this gender binary and for reproducing the fictions of heterosexuality and homosexuality and to think about transsexuality as pathology and so on. In 2005, B decided to do an experiment challenging that idea of transsexuality as pathology. For 263 days, he self-administered a testosterone gel, which he got from a friend and had no prescription for. The experiment changed B's physical and social experience of the world, increasing his feelings of social recognition, inclusion, and strength. And it also invigorated his writing. He came to see himself as one in a long line of philosophers who have explored the mind by experimenting with the body. It starts with uh, Nietzsche, basically, and goes to Freud, and Freud using cocaine, and Benjamin using hashish, and Huxley using mescaline, and, I mean, all these thinkers that have been using the, the body as a platform for experimentation. 
The writing B did during that time became a book that not only details her experiment, but also the wider history of sex, drugs, and biopolitics since the 19th century. It's called Testo Junkie. Yeah, when you're, when you're using testosterone this way, uh, then you become a junkie in a way. Then you basically, <laughs> what you're doing is just like a, taking a, a drug that is as illegal as any of the other drugs, and then you have to actually decide how much you take, who is uh, giving it to you, and how are you going to take it, right? What's so radical about what B did is that she did it without any desire to transition from female to male. She's part of a growing number of individuals who don't identify with the binary system of gender at all. I have a lot of friends that are doing exactly the same thing that I do. So more and more we're kind of a, a I would say, kind of a generation that we are in-betweeners. It has nothing to do with uh, just like uh, gender reassignment or, or not being basically comfortable with your own body and wanting to become a man or something like that. It's like a form of gender dissidence. And in that respect for me, it's like an embodied political activism. We need new, uh, a new grammar. We need a new way of uh, thinking about gender, sexuality, and we, we cannot continue using just the, the words that have been provided to us by the medical system or the legal system. We are seeing this, this new generation really uh, wanted to ask new questions. So I, I kind, of, uh, kind of look at it with, with hope myself. Henry Darger is one of the art world's most famous mysteries. He spent most of his life working at Catholic hospitals in Chicago doing janitorial work. And when he died, his landlord discovered a pile of large paintings in his room, most of them featuring little girls with penises. I, I think that his representation of the little girls with penises really were his way of representing the queer theory of the day. Jim Elledge is the author of a new biography of Henry Darger called Throwaway Boy. He says the answer to the mystery of the little girls with penises can be found in Henry Darger's sexuality. I really do believe that he was gay. There's just too much evidence to deny that. And because of that, these were little boys that he was painting who just appear like little girls, little boys who are dressed up like little girls, or little boys with girls' uh, hairdos. Now, I own most of the weighty Henry Darger monographs that have been published, and I've watched Jessica Yu's 2004 documentary film about Henry. So when I heard about Jim's book, I was very intrigued. A biography? In the documentary, we learned that the people who lived in the same rooming house as Henry knew so little about him, they couldn't even agree on how to say his name. Henry Darger. Henry Darger. I always pronounced it Henry Darger. It seemed to me that was what other people in the neighborhood called him. Darger. 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 
The information there was was perfect for myth. You know, like janitor found after his death. That's Art so Spiegelman. Out that's in 1990, he and his wife, Françoise Mouly, published 10 pages of artwork by Henry Darger in their magazine, Raw. This is one of the first major publications to feature Henry's little girls with penises. I don't take any special credit for shining a flashlight on it because it's a perfect story and the artwork's really great. Well, I'm convinced that this issue of Raw Magazine is the reason Henry Darger can count so many cartoonists and cartoon fanboys like myself as early members in his fan club. I still recall being blown away by the images, but the total lack of biographical information was definitely part of the appeal. So I dropped by Art Studio in Soho to tell him about Jim Elledge's new book and to ask him what he thought about the idea that there might be more to the Henry Darger story. You know, one assumed he was virginal because he was said to be so outside of any social discourse, uh, total outsider. And then at some point early on, looking into it, it would be like, oh, and he kept like a weather journal of what the, what the weather was supposed to be and what it actually was that day, which to me was hilariously compulsive. But if the story surfaced now, the fact that he's gay would actually help his career. We're living in gen the gender studies moment. I think he's still a pretty strange character. If I found out that he had gone to as a student to the Chicago Art Institute, I'd be a lot less interested. Jim Elledge's new book blows up the idea that we don't know much about Henry Darger. The Throwaway Boy is an incredible work of scholarship. Drawing from a wide range of sources, city records, medical journals, and newspaper accounts, Jim Elledge is able to show us the real world that Henry Darger, outsider artist, inhabited. Henry Darger grew up on the north side of Chicago at the turn of the 20th century. At the age of seven, he was already on his own. His mother was dead, and his father spent most of his time in an alcoholic stupor. One night, Henry, at the age of seven, was picked up by the police. He was caught coming home late at night, having visited a night watchman who worked at a lumber yard with whom uh, Henry had developed a relationship. The police put him in the city's insane asylum, for his protection, of course. Henry was rescued by his father, who finally understood that something had to be done about his son. So he put Henry in a Catholic mission, an orphan's home. But the mission was not a safe place for boys like Henry. At the time, a newspaper article had been published saying that the boys who live at the uh, a mission were involved with what the newspaper reporter called evil. Uh, they learned more evil, he said, in one night than they could, than there than they could have learned uh, for weeks out on the streets. Henry lived at the mission until he was 12. But then, one day, the priest decided there was something evil about Henry. And so they went back to his father, who was now living in a charity home. And they told him that they were going to kick Henry out. This is when Henry's father made a decision that would change the boy's life forever. He had his son committed to an asylum for feeble-minded children downstate Illinois. He went to see a famous doctor in the loop, a man named Otto Schmidt, to get the paperwork. And so what they did was to fill out a three-page application to this asylum. Uh, the doctor actually filled it out 
and he mentioned self-abuse three different times, one time on each of the pages, as it turns out. Now, at the time, self-abuse was the, the nice word, a euphemism for what we call masturbation. It was also a code used by many uh, medical men, uh, physicians primarily, to indicate that somebody was either already homosexual or was about to become homosexual. In Henry Darger's imaginary world, the little girls with penises, the Vivian girls, are fighting a war to liberate the child slaves. Many of his large paintings depict battle scenes or massacres from this war. Little children are subjected to unspeakable horrors, beatings, mutilations, decapitations. But mostly, Henry shows us little children being strangled by adults. The state of Illinois investigated the asylum about a year after Henry Darger escaped. And in the thousand-page report, there's evidence that Henry most likely experienced the things he put into his art firsthand. Boys were uh, routinely beaten with boards and other uh, sorts of things like that. Uh, But more importantly, in order to control these boys, the adult caregivers would strangle them. They would strangle them until their faces turned blue, uh, until their tongues protruded, uh, until they blacked out, and then they could do anything they wanted to the boys. So what he is painting then are, is obviously to me uh, representations of himself and other gay boys uh, that he knew at the asylum and on the streets of Chicago and who had been uh, physically and sexually abused by the adults around them. Most of Henry Darger's artworks are illustrations for his novels. Henry actually thought of himself more a writer than an artist. He wrote a lot. The book about the Vivian girls in the realms of the unreal is the largest. 15,000 pages. His second book, Crazy Town, is also huge. 10,000 pages plus. And his autobiography slash weather journal, that's gigantic as well. 5,000 pages in manuscript form. Altogether, the books that Henry Darger wrote come to about 35,000 pages. Uh, None have ever been published in their entirety. It would probably be pretty impossible for that to happen. Sometimes he repeats things over and over. He adds too many details here and there. And so the, the novels take a lot of effort to read. It took Jim Elledge almost two years to read everything. He says there are many instances where Henry alludes to his sexuality, especially in his book Further Adventures in Chicago or Crazy Town. One of the main characters in Crazy Town is a little boy named Weber George, who gets in trouble, just as young Henry Darger did. Jim Elledge is convinced that this little boy provides us with the answer to the mystery of the little girls with penises. At one point in the the novel, Darger addresses the reader and he says that the reason why Weber George is such a bad little boy is because he had wanted to be born a girl and he was angry that he wasn't. Then Darger drops a bombshell. He says, dear reader, you may think this very strange, but the author knows many little boys 
who wished they had been born little girls. In the 1920s, a group of University of Chicago sociologists conducted interviews with gay men who lived in Henry Darger's neighborhood on the north side of Chicago. Many of these men claimed they were women trapped in male bodies. But is this something that Henry believed? Was he part of a gay or transgender subculture? Those questions are impossible to answer. But Henry Darger definitely had a long-term, serious relationship with a man. This is perhaps the most striking revelation in The Throwaway Boy. Because the evidence is not something Jim found buried in the Henry Darger archives or something hidden in one of the texts. It's something that's been staring us in the face all along. You see, Henry Darger had three photos of himself. And these photos have been printed in almost every article and book. They even show up in the movie. And they all feature Henry and his friend Bill Schlater, or Willie. Jim Elledge says it's time to acknowledge that these two men were more than just friends. The photographs, the three I'm talking about uh, with Willie, were taken at a photographing studio at Riverview Amusement Park. People would go into the studio and choose a setting. One of the more popular ones that couples, heterosexual couples who were serious about one another or who had just gotten married or who were about to get married would often choose was the back of a caboose. It was a honeymoon caboose, and there was even a song at the time that talked about this very thing. And in all three of the photographs of Henry and Willie, they chose the exact same setting. It was the honeymoon caboose. Their relationship was far, far, far more than just a typical straight guy friendship. The first photo was taken in about 1911 and the last in the early 30s. Henry and Willie palled around, that's the phrase Henry liked to use, for almost 30 years. They never lived together. Henry roomed in cheap boarding houses, and Willie lived with his two controlling sisters, Lizzie and Catherine. In 1931, Lizzie died, and Catherine decided that she and her brother should move as far away from the frigid Chicago winters as possible. After a few years in the suburbs, they settled in San Antonio, Texas. Henry and Willie never saw each other again. When Henry received word of Willie's death in 1959, he sent Catherine a letter. He wrote, I feel as if lost in empty space. Now nothing matters to me at all. This is something that uh, someone who was in love with another human being uh, would have written. Uh, They weren't just friends. They were so much more. In Henry Darger's imaginary world, the little girls with penises don't fight alone. Magical dragon-like creatures called Blengens sometimes come to their aid. And sometimes sympathetic adults are drawn to their struggle for freedom and liberation. One of these adults was named Captain Henry Darger, and he had a friend named Willie. 
This is an excerpt from The Realms of the Unreal. His friend's name is William Schlater. The two are regular hawks. They are the head presidents of the Children's Protective Society, called the Gemini, a lodge of men congregated who are terrible enemies of all those who prove themselves child-haters. I have a picture of them both. And he produced a picture of two tall men, not handsome in looks or appearance, but nevertheless with a grim determination upon their faces. There are ways that creativity will ignore the obstacles in an artist's or a writer's life and figure out ways in order for that artist, that writer, to express what needs to be expressed. And for him to be able to figure out how to tell his queer story, not just to queer people, but to anyone who wants to uh, know it, is quite amazing and very heroic, I think, ultimately. You're listening to WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker. We're winding down to the last quarter hour of the Too Much Information show. That thing I just played, uh, three segments, uh, I put a link on the uh, Aki Playlist page for some information to that. But uh, interview with Jim Elledge, who has a new biography about Henry Darger, uh, Beatrice Preciado uh, wrote the book on testosterone and philosophy and then the first segment was an interview I did with uh, uh, Yvette Gonzalez about solitary confinement and prison as uh, Dale pointed out on the Aki playlist yes dark stuff Uh, and I had help for that with uh, the one and only Bill Bowen who's helped out so much over the last years working on this and then Ravenna Koenig interviewed Beatrice yeah, it was about four years ago to the day that uh, yours truly started this program. And uh, back then I thought, oh yeah, it'd be no problem to do this once a week. But what I just played you is 34 minutes. And see, in the podcast world, you can do one of those every other week. But in the radio world, you need to fill the whole hour and it all needs to be good. And uh, goodbye to me on the radio because it just was too hard um and you know there are so many amazing people here that uh you're that are on the air at wfmu that can do an hour with their eyes closed with their hands tied behind their back so the new schedule that starts next week will be going live soon uh look for that but all right we're gonna wind things down with uh something from the very second show i did which is exactly four years ago and this um has an interview with one of my favorite cast members peter who's in the new show which you can find at toe.prx.org and i put a link on the Aki playlist so we're going to go out with this this is something i did four years ago here on too much information it's been a lot of fun and i will see you all on the radio
Stacy Chalemi graduated from Richard Stockton College in Pomona, New Jersey, majoring in marketing and advertising. In the mid-90s, while in college, she began her first book, Epilepsy, You're Not Alone. It was published six years later. Some of her other books include How to Be Wealthy Selling Informational Products on the Internet, two children's books, Mommy Has Epilepsy and Daddy Has Epilepsy, and Eternal Love, Romantic Poetry Straight from the Heart. Her most recent book is called How Thinking Positive Can Make You Successful. Her website says she's written over 400 articles, contributed to Chicken Soup for the Recovering Soul and Chicken Soup for the Shopper Soul, and she says a recent accomplishment was a book signing at the Borders Express in Freehold, New Jersey. And that's where we are now, on the main floor, sitting on the comfortable couches in the Asia Travel section. Stacy, thanks for bringing me to a place that's special to you. I can't help but wonder, is it easier to stay positive when we stay close to places we have good associations with? Oh, I think definitely. I think when you're comfortable in a situation, you always have a more positive attitude. But yeah, you know, this has been my hometown for many, many years. And, you know, I, I grew up in this area, so, uh, and I, I love it around here. Everybody in the store seems to know you. Yeah, you know, I, I've made a, a lot of friends over the years, and, you know, and my book signings and, and all my other stuff. I, I've uh, met a lot of people over the years. Well, let's talk about some tactics. Okay. Early on in your book, you, you recommend visualization. You say visualize happiness and success. Add mental pictures that support your positive affirmations. How does this work? You know what? First, you're accepting yourself. You're going to learn how to accept yourself, who you are. But, but wait, wait, what if the problem isn't me? Okay. Well, <laughs> give me what an if, example. Hypothetically, I have a boss who mm -hmm. is really awful. Like, right. Really, this guy is very petty, mean-spirited, really awful individual. I mean, mm -hmm. the kind of guy that uses every opportunity to make you feel small and insignificant, someone who berates and belittles you on a daily basis, right. and then in a jokey voice will say something like, totally absurd, like, oh, I'm going to leave all this behind and go study conflict resolution. Right. Like, a mean person is going to go out there and study conflict resolution, you know, with, like, on international relations. But sometimes I do visualize this hypothetical boss of mine just kind of not existing and, and right. not in like a mean way like a bus running over him mm -hmm. or, or lightning striking i like to visualize more biblically like the earth opening up and swallowing him whole mm -hmm. and uh he's really into composting so it's <laughs> totally implausible and i know that's very negative but reading your book i was thinking that perhaps i could better get what i want by visualizing in a more positive manner like i know he's miserable and mm -hmm. lonely i caught him once looking on uh, the internet at like a online dating yeah. system so he's lonely so is it possible for me to visualize him say meeting a nice woman in india who's like yeah. in the composting and, and maybe that's like he's out of here to go like after true love you know, it's, 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 it's a good visualization. Obviously this person is, has a low self-esteem, has a lot of anger inside of them. They're using other people to, to vent out to try to make themselves feel better. Because a lot of times when they say things, negative things to other people, it's because they feel like that themselves. And they're using you as a way to, to, to vent. A way to, they have no, nowhere to vent. So they vent out on anybody and anything. So you know what, you look at that person and say, I'm so above that person. That person has issues they're not dealing with and that's not my problem. But you know what, I know I'm above them. I know I'm better than him. And I'm just gonna 
block those comments out. I'm on the balcony. You're on the They're balcony, on the man, and he's on the street, you know. By he's the garbage can. By the garbage can. He's by the sewers, man, you know, and you're way above there, you know. And it's like, you know what, you can't change him. This is who he is. This is where he wants to be. That's his problem. Mm -hmm. But you know what, you can, you just have to learn how to tune him out. When I, someone comes over to me, they're negative, they're saying stuff, you know what, I have to stop and think for a second before it lets, gets me down. I say, you know what, this person, either they're jealous, they have issues and anger because a lot of people tend to be jealous and they'll shoot negative comments out about other people because they just want to be where you're at. You know, you just have to keep moving up the tatum pole and just let him stay by the sewers. You write in your book that you must free yourself from negative things that you have stored inside you and fill your soul with peace and serenity. Yes, definitely. How, you, how do you go about doing this? Basically, in, in life, we all have our stresses, you know, between, you know, especially in this day and age. It's not like, you know, back in the day with our grandparents, uh, you know, we, um, we, ha we have a lot of more things on our shoulders. Even the young kids nowadays have a lot of more things to cope with on their shoulders. Uh, you know, we have to learn how to you know, deal with the obstacles that occur in our lives. We need to uh, let go of things that, you know, hold us back mm -hmm. and we need to look forward. I always say the past past um, is, is, is gone. Now you have to learn how to love yourself. A lot of times, not many people, we, we tend to not love ourselves. I think you know? I'm okay. All right, so you think you love yourself. Okay. No, I think I'm okay. All right, you think you're okay. You're, right, you're on the borderline. I call it like friend, friend, friends with benefits. Okay, friends with benefits. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, so, so right now you want to change, so that's the perfect thing. Another thing you talk about is dreaming and fantasizing. This is one of my favorite things in your book. Yeah. Uh, you say, dreaming and fantasizing give you a feeling of serenity and inner peace. Definitely. Fantasizing has a positive impact on you and your body. When you fantasize, you put yourself in a state of consciousness that lies between reality and the world of dreams. Right. The imagination roams freely, although usually guided by mostly unconscious urges, concerns, and memories. Mm -hmm. Fantasies help us to find out what kind of ambition we have and the people we want to become in life. Right. Now this dreaming and fantasying, this is where positive thinking is positively not worked for me. Mm -hmm. I'm really good at daydreaming and fantasies. And uh, a few years ago, I was living with a girl mm -hmm. and I was very unhappy and at night I would stay up reading and I would fret about the situation and I was desperately trying to think of a plan to get out and between the bedroom and the bathroom there was a window that looked out across the parking lot at another building right. across the way and every night I would be up late and I could see that there was a woman in the building uh, in a, an apartment across the uh, mm -hmm. the parking lot and she would always be up late too and she was on her treadmill and she uh, was a very beautiful Asian woman who was always on her treadmill and I kind of uh, would watch her night after night and I, I kind of created this whole fantasy world about how we were meant to be together right. and uh, we would you know maybe open up like a bar slash bookstore <laughs> or we'd become like an internationally famous documentary team and you know, it wasn't just like a, a crazy retarded fantasy. I would also, you know, fantasize realistically right. about like maybe meeting her on the street and saying, hey, you know, we're neighbors. We should go out. <laughs> I see you on the treadmill every night. But the point of the story is that when I was finally ready to do this, I was finally ready to like, you know, stand outside the building and meet her. She I'd moved. Leave, I'd leave out the watching her on, on the treadmill <laughs> side of the thing, you know, if you, if you, do, if you did bump but into her. But she moved. 
one night the apartment was empty, and the next there's this like fat guy moving in. And I was, like, totally devastated. There goes your. Uh... I lost my chance of happiness, and I felt like I had completely failed myself, my dreams, and I got really angry. And I remember staring at him as he was, you know, like setting up his giant flat screen TV where right. she had her nice little treadmill and, and, and a yeah. modest computer monitor. And I was just thinking really powerful negative thoughts, as like right. as negative as I could possibly think. And the next day, his apartment went on fire. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Fire trucks came. Oh Cranes went up to the window, and they shot water all over his stuff. It was total chaos. Oh and my god! One night later, I'm staring at like the charred facade, mm -hmm. and his windows all boarded up. Oh wow! I even have a picture of it. Look at this. That was the fire. Oh my god! <gasps> let anyone know because if they know then the possibilities are much greater that they'll just leave or walk away from you in the middle of the sentence i had no choice i had to sound as phony fake friendly funny as i could because the one thing i learned that i was horrified and shocked and did not need to learn was that it's true that uh, nobody sticks by you when the times are tough it's funny because, you know, as much as I'm hearing you talk about these friends that deserted you, and I'm like, God, those bastards, how dare they? There were definitely times when, you know, I was just sitting there reading a book or having a coffee or walking down the streets, and, and I would, you know, hear my phone ring, and I would take it out of my pocket, and it would say, Peter Choice, you know, and I would just, you know, put it back in my pocket. So, I mean, I guess I was one of those people. 80% of the people I know left when I became in pain in a wheelchair and uh, so I just grouped you with the 80% people who flee when friends are in trouble so so are you still in a wheelchair I'm sitting in one right now yes I mean j My, uh, not just because it's furniture but are you actually in one day to day I have two wheelchairs I have one for the car and one for the house so a lot has really happened to you over the past few years well it all happened at the same time the strike in Hollywood, which really never ended, a sag through all the movies and TV shows out of Hollywood. So that happened at the same time that uh, my physical problem started, so I, I couldn't get out of the house. And also, I stopped being on the radio, a creative outlet. Mm -hmm. And then no one came to visit because uh, I became a problem. I don't have a wife, say or a best friend. I was uh, alone, lonely. So what did you do? What I do is I objectify my situation. As they say, rise above my own thing and view it from the outside and try to take into account that at least I'm here in this time and place, meaning uh, the comforts of a bed. Uh, what I'm not is on Skid Row. I haven't failed completely. I'm not completely drug addicted or uh, alcohol poisoned or Jesus freaked. And I'm not in India or Mexico eating out of garbage cans. You know, I tried that all the time, but it, it never worked. 
I mean, I would think things like, I have a job, I get paid well, I have an apartment, I get to live by myself without roommates, downtown Manhattan, I have girlfriends. Yeah, that doesn't sound like much of a problem. You know, I even thought things like, you could be like Peter Choice, who's suffering in a wheelchair in the middle of nowhere, all alone, facing destitution, a meth addict, but it just didn't help. I was still consumed by depression. You know, you're just like everybody that goes to see a psychiatrist. And what happens at a psychiatrist is the psychiatrist makes you worse because they're doing the opposite of what should happen. What Your problem is you're too much inside yourself. You think about yourself. Once you learn how to get outside yourself and care about others, your problems become very small. For instance, remember I, so I was withdrawing from dangerous drugs, all these Michael Jackson drugs methadone, morphine, Mm -hmm. and I quit cigarettes on top of it, and I was so excited about about quitting cigarettes, I never had cravings or anything, and the way that I did it was I became very concerned about my cat, because I had a new kitten, and I had an old cat, and they didn't like me smoking, of course, because they have small lungs, and Getting outside myself just that way, not even toward another human, but another being, made me quit smoking. It really works. It's like, uh, now I'm responsible for something other than myself. Surely, if I had another human, that I would have used the human, but the cats were good enough. It's such a great trick, a great philosophy. It works so well that you can do it with an animal. Well, Peter, I'm glad your kitty-powered mind games helped you with the cigarettes, but what about the loneliness? How do you solve that? Couchsurfing. Couchsurfing.org. Or is it .com? Is it couchsurfing.com or org? Couchsurfing.org. Who are you talking to? I'm talking to Alexandra. She's here. She's uh, couchsurfing. It's, this is mind-boggling. You have someone in your house right now couch surfing. Yes, it's a program that's on the internet. It's not a program at all. It's just uh, uh, you host people that are traveling. They're all temporary. So what could be more perfect? Because my only real problem was I didn't like being lonely at the age of 50. As long as the room is full, then I'm not alone. So You have someone right now? Yes. From where? She's from France. Let me talk to her. Hey, Alexandria, will you talk to Ben Walker? She says she's shy. It's okay. It's okay. Tell her I'll be nice. No. no. Hello? Bonjour. Uh, Bonjour. (laughs) How are you? Uh, I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm very Mm -hmm. good. Um, It's funny. I know no French. Um, I should. Oh, you know one word? I know one word, but, you know, I have a French girl living with me. I like to date foreigners. Yeah? I have this theory that if you date someone who speaks another language, then you never have to worry about having one of those uncomfortable moments where you think you actually understand each other. Uh, you should be ashamed of yourself. Thank you, I am. So, how many nights have you been there? Uh, two. Two nights, and and how's it going? Um, he didn't tell me that he was a nudist, so he was like walking naked all the time. You know, at first I wasn't comfortable with us, you know. Has he, like, asked you to eat breakfast with him, lunch with him, dinner with him? Yeah. He has? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the requirement is, is that you actually have to hang out. 
Yeah, 24-7. Uh-huh. So, how's he doing? Well, he, he, um, how do I say, complains a lot about his pain uh, for the, for the back. Interesting. See, I've, I thought this wheelchair thing was fake, just so he could get, like, the sticker, so he could park the car. Oh, he's not using it. <laughs> I knew it. And he leaves, he leaves the door open, so, you know, every, every cat in the neighborhood can come in and, you know, eat. Yeah. Sorry, I don't like it. Okay, okay. So do you think that when you leave, like, he'll fall apart? No. I know, okay, I'm, I'm leaving, but uh, people are coming. You're listening to WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, in Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Coming up next, Nardwar, the Human Cheviot Radio Show. Cancun. Seven hundred mil. It don't hold a candle to the SNL. 
about the murder and the bodily harm, but you're still busy bragging about desert star. And it happened in Granada and Panama, too. Ask the widows and the orphans about the whitewash they use. Listening to WFMU, and it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show. You just heard right there, whitewash from the bongos from a musical review of the JFK assassination cover-up. And today on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show, relating to the JFK assassination, an interview with Scott, who helped put together the assembler of Lee Harvey Oswald, The Last 48 Hours, a documentary on the History Channel. Lee Harvey Oswald, his last 48 hours, today on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. And to get you ready for Lee Harvey Oswald, going to play something that I bring out every time I think about the JFK assassination, Steinsky with And the Motorcade Sped On, on... The Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show on WFMU. And now, here's Johnny. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your. Here is a bulletin. Here is a bulletin. What is it? Stand by, please. Stand by, please. Dallas, Texas. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. In the motorcade route. Three shots were fired. Three. Put me on, Bell. Put me on. Three. Put me on, Bell. Put me on. Three. President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. Stand by, please. More details just arrived. Mrs. Kennedy jumped up. She called, oh, no.